We're in this series called Fully His, and it's in the book of James. And I think the book of James is an absolutely remarkable document. Because what we have here is, first of all, it's the first thing that was written after Jesus was on earth that then became part of our Bible. So that's, you know, interesting. But the thing that's amazing about it is who wrote it. James was one of Jesus' half-brothers, as in same mother, different father. Okay, so Jesus had uh, younger uh, brothers and uh, sisters, we're told, and James was one of them. And while Jesus was doing his thing, while he was going around and, you know, healing people and raising people from the dead and all of that stuff, James was not having it. He was not buying in. And actually, sometimes your family are the hardest people to convince of anything, right? And so Jesus experienced that. And James uh, was kind of looking at Jesus and going, you're annoyingly nice, you're annoyingly good. You don't do anything wrong ever, but I'm not buying that you're the Messiah. And so he was an absolute skeptic. And then just over a decade later, he's writing the first book that gets into our New Testament. What in the world has gone on? Well, there's this one little phrase that gives it all away in 1 Corinthians. No need to turn to it. 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about the fact that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again. And then he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then he appeared to 500 at one time, and then verse 7 says, then he appeared to James. Just, just a comment like that. Then he appeared to James. Next thing we know, James is one of the most significant, influential leaders in the early church. I think the risen Christ was quite convincing. As much as you want to be a skeptic, it's my brother, you know, no one knows him like I do. When your brother comes back from the dead, it tends to get your attention. And so James was absolutely transformed by that. And as one of the leaders in the early church, he was concerned for others that were, I think, perhaps kind of on the fringes a little bit. They were kind of involved. They were sort of uh, maybe in the, the gathering of Jesus' followers, but somehow they weren't fully gripped. And so as he writes this letter, he's writing it to Christians, and he's writing really a letter that's known for being massively practical. It's kind of like rubber meets the road Christianity, but that's not to say that it's superficial or simplistic or just practical or pragmatic, because while there's this kind of the on-the-surface practical things that he talks about, there's also a below-the-surface real issue going on, and his real issue, his real concern is that these people uh, who are followers of Jesus should mature, should grow. This is a really important thing for us because sometimes we can give the impression that becoming a Christian is it, right? Like there's, there's this uh, reality that we're sinners and we're heading for a, a judgment and a lost eternity, uh, but God has made a way for us to become uh, saved, to have this new status where we get a future with him in heaven. And we can quite easily get the impression that you're not a Christian and then you become a Christian and that's it. Almost like a sort of, uh, I've got my heavenly fire insurance. I'm sorted now. Last week, this helps me get back into where I was now. Last week, we saw the first part of the chapter um, where James is, is right into the real nitty gritty of life. And he says, right away, you're going to face trials, various kinds of trials, difficulties, tough circumstances. But he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And you think, well, how in the world are we supposed to count it joy? And what it gives us in that section is this sense that trials, although they're inevitable and painful, they're also purposeful. That is, God is at work through trials to mature us and to develop us. That's where I was. That Christianity is not just 
we get in and that's it. When we become followers of Jesus, we're beginning a journey. And there's this journey towards maturity that's going to last for the rest of this life. And so James is concerned with our maturing. And so he talks about trials and he says that we should trust, this is what we saw last week, trust your loving Father in heaven to give you good gifts, including the trials that mature you. Okay, so trust your loving Father to give you good gifts, including the trials that mature you. And so the tough circumstances, the difficulties in life, God is a good, good father. He gives good things to us, but the good that he gives us is not just, I think I use the analogy of kind of sweet donuts. You know, as a father, I love giving my kids donuts to a certain extent, but I'm also loving enough to give them the cough medicine that they need, even though they don't like it. And God's a good father. He gives us not only donuts, he gives us cough medicine when we need it. But also, we're told in the passage, he never gives us poison. That is, he never tempts us to sin. And I've been pondering that, just how amazing that is, that God is so good that in all of my life, which is getting longer, uh, apparently, people keep mentioning my age now, uh, I'm, in all of my life, God has never once tempted me to sin. Isn't that amazing? Now, I've been tempted to sin millions of times, but that comes from me. That's what James clarifies. That's coming from me. That's not coming from God. God gives good gifts, including trials. So how do we cope with trials? Last week, we saw in verses 5 down to 12 that we should look to God to give us the wisdom that we need, the perspective, his perspective in trials, and to give us hope to get us through trials. In effect, he's saying, when you're struggling, don't try to figure it out. Don't rely on your own resources. You come to God and say, God, I don't get this. I don't understand how in the world am I supposed to get through this. I need your perspective. I need your wisdom. And so it's coming to him in prayer. But now we're going to look at a section at the end of James 1 where he effectively tells us kind of the other side of that. He's going to tell us in this end of the chapter that if we are going to be maturing, growing, if we're going to go on to spiritual maturity, that's going to come based on our response to this. So we come to him and we plead with him to give us perspective, but we also need to come to his word. And so if you have a Bible or if you can grab one, James chapter 1, I'd like you to be able to see the text if possible. And what we're going to find, I'll read it to you in just a second, but what we're going to find is this, that spiritual maturity comes from humbly receiving God's word and responding to it. Spiritual maturity comes from humbly receiving God's word and responding to it. Let me read it to you. Do we have a page number? I keep forgetting to... 1011. Love it. 1011. So starting with this little heading there, hearing and doing the word, verse 19, let me read it to us. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." 
If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so let's, let's look at that section. First of all, the, the first bit, verses 19 to 20, maturity begins with humbly receiving God's implanted word. In verse 19, he comes out with these three instructions. It feels a bit like a, a sort of set of proverbs almost, doesn't it? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Just good advice for life. Actually, it is good advice for life, and, and actually it is a, a good description of what a mature uh, Christian is like. And maybe you've been around somebody that's the opposite of this. In fact, I'm sure you have. Whether it's at work uh, or um, in, in school, in, in your home, in your marriage. In fact, maybe you're like the opposite of this in your marriage or wherever. You know, this is, this is possible, right? I think we can recognize this, that it's actually quite natural for us to be slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to become angry. I think what he's describing is, is a human in, in our normal state, a human in an immature state. I think what he's talking about here is, is how we can so quickly kind of flare up to defend ourselves and protect ourselves. He's not just giving random uh, relational advice. I think he's describing something uh, that we could call spiritual immaturity. So before we become a Christian, before we know Jesus, this is probably the natural us. And then once we've become a Christian, this is still the natural us. So that when somebody comes and confronts in some way and challenges, the natural response is quickly to talk and to not hear what they're saying and even to kind of flare up in some way and to get angry. I remember when I was young, like 39. In fact, I remember Tuesday night when Melanie said something to me and I instantly rose up and opposed what she was saying and defended myself. This is actually quite easy, isn't it? It's quite natural for us. Don't you tread on my ego. I'm going to defend. And I think what James is describing here is something that we can all relate to, whether we flare up in kind of, ex, uh, kind of external anger or whether we kind of have that simmering, quiet anger. It's that anger that comes when we're guarding ourselves. Remember that when we were created... We had no self-concern at all. We were giving and loving and, and everything was great. But that got messed up in the Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning. When sin came in, we became uh, what we thought. We became godlike, independent beings, somehow supposed to guard our own vulnerabilities. Adam and Eve covered themselves in fig leaves. They didn't want it to show that they weren't like God. And I think we've been fig leafing ever since protecting our own ego, protecting our own kind of uh, reputation, even if the only person that believes it is ourselves and we know the truth that it's not true, but we still do it. And the reason I think that James is specifically talking about that issue is because verse 20 says, not these are good suggestions that I suggest you try in your relationships. He immediately says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He's actually concerned not with how we respond to one another so much as how we respond to God. And he's saying, okay, God is at work 
in us. He wants to change us. Our natural response is, don't you dare touch me. Don't you mess with me. I'm okay. I've figured it out. I can handle this. And our natural, immature selves get defensive, reactive. We, we don't like it when God's word puts its finger on something in our lives. Can anyone else relate to that or is that just me? Sometimes you're reading the Bible and it gets really uncomfortable. And you go, oh, that's not me, that's not me. That's, some, that's for someone else. I don't like this bit anyway. I prefer the Old Testament. Oh, no, the Old Testament, that's tough. You know, we can kind of pick and mix and choose our way through the Bible. And, and God's saying, wait, 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 wait. You, you, you cannot get righteousness. You cannot develop maturity with that kind of response to God's word. It's never going to happen. It's not the, the way to get there. In fact, what he, he says in verse 21 is therefore, in connection to that stuff, this isn't just random uh, information, in connection to that angry response, he says, therefore, move down the verse a little bit, receive the word. So when the word comes, you're reading the Bible, you're hearing the Bible, it's being preached, and it kind of pokes you on a nerve, he's saying, receive the word. Don't flare up, don't defend yourselves. Maturity begins with humbly receiving the word. In fact, notice that little term he uses there, receive the implanted word. That's a weird thing to say, the implanted word. What he's describing, I think, here is massively important. And if we miss this, we're going to go away with a sense that James is giving us a good suggestion. Yes, I must do better at receiving the word. I'll try harder. But that word implanted, that's significant. What that means, I think, is this, that when God saves us, when we become a believer, something happens inside of us. It's not just in James, it's in Peter, it's in John, it's in other places. There's a a direct connection between the word of God and our salvation. There's something that happens in our salvation where the word of God is planted deep inside of us. This is where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, the offer of the gospel, and the truth of God's Word that we have in the Bible, and plants it inside of us so that that Word is now naturally inside. Implanted, it means naturally, belonging. It's, It's there. But James isn't saying that we've always had a bit of God's Word in us. That's nonsense. The Bible doesn't affirm that at all. What he's saying is the moment you become a Christian, one of the things that's happening in that moment is that God's Spirit is planting God's Word inside you. So that now, deep within, something different is going on. There's, there's something within the Spirit of God at work by the Word that means that when you come to the Bible, you have a different reaction to it. You may have noticed this. Anyone can read the Bible. Anyone can study it. Anyone can learn stuff from it. There's university departments all across the land where people are studying the Bible and theology uh, as if they're studying Shakespeare or Chaucer or Aristotle. It's, it's like an object of their study. It's fascinating. It's interesting. You know, they're doing their intellectual stuff. But there's no connection because they don't have a living relationship with God. They don't have the word planted within. 
But when the word of God is planted within, suddenly we have a different attitude towards the Bible. There's something different that that happens. One guy a few centuries ago said that that for a Christian, what you discover is that there is is an attractiveness. When you hear it, you go, oh yeah, and you feel drawn to it. He said that as well as that, there's a natural sense of its applicability, of its relevance to your life. Suddenly you're reading it and you're like, oh, that's me, that's me, oh, that's true for me, oh, I need that. Where before it was a historical document, suddenly there's this connection from your heart to this. It's as if the same spirit who inspired God's word is at work within you. Imagine, that's the implanted word. There's a connection there. It's natural. It's supernatural. But now it's natural because you were dead. Once you become a Christian, you're alive to God's word because it's planted within. And there's a connection that takes place. I heard about a guy, uh, Emile something. He was a philosophy professor. And, and he, he, as a young man, decided that he was going to write a book that understood him. And so he had a little notebook, and and every time he read something that was powerful or moving or, you know, kind of like, oh, look at that, one of those kind of special moments, he would take the time and write it out word for word, and he was just filling this book with all these amazing quotes and sections of literature, all the best stuff that's ever been written. And he longed for the day when it would be finished, and he could sit down, and he could read a book that understood him. And eventually, he describes the time when he finally did. He was sat under a tree, and he opened his book, and he was profoundly disappointed. He found himself looking at it and thinking, why did I put that bit in there? Or, or I remember that, but I've moved on. I've changed. That doesn't really apply anymore. And he said it was the most disappointing thing. Sometime later, he became a Christian. And the Spirit planted the Word of God within him. And he opened the Bible and started to read it and suddenly realized, no, this is the book that understands me. Other books are just sitting there. They're just still. And we move on and they no longer target our hearts. But this is alive and it's always relevant and it's always for me. And so therefore, what is James saying in verses 19 to 21? Maturity begins by receiving the implanted word. But notice how he describes it. Receiving it with meekness, humbly. Not, not kind of chest puffed out, aggressive, but gentle. He says, receive God's word with meekness. I remember some years ago hearing a, a Chinese preacher, one of those sermons that marked my life. I remember it really well. And, and he was saying to us, uh, you Westerners don't know how to read your Bibles properly, which is always a good thing to say, you know, when you're the only one in the room that isn't Western. But anyway, he, he came out with this and he said, well, look, I watch you. When you're reading your Bibles, you read like this from left to right. He said, that's very wrong. You need to read it like a Chinese person. A Chinese person reads the Bible from top to bottom. When we read, we're doing this. He said, that's the attitude. Not this. This. Not shaking your head, nodding your head for the recording. And what, he, uh, what I think he missed is another thing we get wrong, just to be you know, really critical of our culture. We tend to read like this, don't we? My head over God's word. And we read it and, and we sort of evaluate it. And is this relevant for me? And do I like this bit? Oh, that's challenging the way I live. Not too big a fan of that. And so we tend to put ourselves over the Bible. The right attitude is to put ourselves under it. Now, 
I am saying that's the right way to read the Bible. I'm also going to admit that's a really awkward way. With the Bible held above your head and nodding, okay, you do that for too long, you're going to need to visit a chiropractor for a bit of an adjustment. But I'll put it to you this way. Forget the physical, literal kind of, you know, holding the Bible up. If our attitude is not that, if our attitude is looking down at God's word and shaking our head, then God's going to need to do a bit of an adjustment with us. Because he wants us to receive his word as the gift that it is. The gift of God speaking to us. And so therefore the right response is to come to it and go, Yes, Lord, whatever you say, Lord, tell me, teach me, show me, guide me, whatever you want. I want to be someone that's responsive to what you say. I want to humbly receive the implanted word. It's an attitude issue to begin with. But then from verses 22 to 25 He goes on because it's not just about how we begin. It's also ongoing. If spiritual maturity begins with humbly receiving the implanted word, then in these verses what we find is that maturity develops as we responsively do what God's word says. Notice you probably caught this image as we're going through. It's the the image of the guy who looks intently into the mirror. Not a quick glance, it's an intent look. It's kind of like a real peering. In those days, the mirrors were kind of rubbish, sort of polished metal, so you'd have to really peer to get much out of it. But really peering into the mirror and then forgetting what he sees. And this is somehow a picture of how we're not supposed to read our Bibles. That is, we're not supposed to to look at the Bibles, and and, and as we read our Bibles, it shows us something about ourselves, and then we forget about it. It doesn't matter how long you study. If you just walk away and forget it, you're missing something vitally important. Truly receiving God's Word is not forgetting. It's actually doing what you're shown. I suppose to, to use the analogy, it's like looking in a mirror to make sure you look okay. Um, we do that. It, you know, it's not always vanity. Sometimes it's just kindness to others, isn't it? You, you look in the mirror. Uh, some of you don't know what it's like to shave. Um, but for me, you know, that's kind of what I have to do. And I didn't yesterday because Melanie couldn't figure out a way to get me to shave without giving away that there was something going on. But, but I shaved today, you'll be glad to know. But then I looked carefully to make sure there wasn't blood pouring down my face. Because I find that people get a bit put off by that. You know, when there's like a huge gush and I'm losing liters, for some reason it bothers them. And so I make sure that actually, no, that's not bleeding, I'm okay. But if we look into God's word and it shows us that there's an issue, whatever that issue might be, and then we promptly walk away and forget it, we're not receiving God's word. We're not responding in, in a way that honors his desire for us. And so the contrast to that is uh, down in verse 25. In contrast to the guy with the mirror, it says in verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Be a doer who acts. Do you remember Jesus' story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? So Matthew 5, 6, 7, he gives this uh, huge block of teaching. And at the end, he kind of cements it, finishes it with a story. Maybe you remember it. Maybe you've sung about it. There were two men, two builders, and they each one built a house. One built his house on the rock, and one built his house on the sand. 
And then the storms came and the, the waters came down and the, the house on the rock stood firm and the house on the sand fell flat. And we do the big old clap, right? If you grew up in church, you know what I'm on about. Big contrast between building your house on the rock and building your house on the sand. Then the chorus tells us, slightly erroneously, so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. Completely true, theologically, not the point of that passage. What did Jesus actually say? He said, the wise builder is like the man who hears my word and does them. But he who hears my word and does not do them is like a foolish builder. Notice the contrast. It's not hearing God's word. It's doing it. Jesus is saying, I can give you all the teaching in the world, and you can ooh and ah and celebrate and worship and do whatever you want. But if you are not responsive to what I give you, you're building your house on sand. That's what James is saying here. We need to be a doer who acts as the word of God puts its finger, his finger on issues in our lives. He's anticipating response from us. And so we need to be a doer who acts. Notice another detail there. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. That's important. It's not just read and then go and then everything's sorted. Actually, the word of God has a real work to do in us. And so simply having a quick glimpse and then moving on is going to bear the fruit you'd kind of expect, I suppose, to mix our analogies, if a farmer had a quick go with his fields and then moved on. It wouldn't bear much fruit, right? And so what James is saying here is persevere. Look intently into the word and persevere. Devour it. Read it. Study it. Analyze it. Memorize it. Some of us were in the Mark drama recently. And we memorize the structure of the book of Mark. Let me just encourage you, if you did that, don't lose it. Review it. Go over it. Keep it so that you can then think through the gospel of Mark. If you read a passage in the morning, in your Bible time, first thing, and, and you, know, you, you kind of pick a highlight, write it down on a piece of paper or write it on your phone, text it to yourself. Do something so that, that you can keep pondering it. There's a perseverance necessary. And I think sometimes we act as if the Bible's a vitamin pill that I'll just take a little bit and then it should fix everything. And actually we wonder why it doesn't. Because God is speaking to us and he's inviting us to look intently into his word and persevere. Because it's the one who perseveres who is going to get to see themselves clearly if we use that mirror analogy. Seeing ourselves clearly is a good thing in this section. Being aware of what God wants to do in our lives is a good thing, but it's not a natural thing. Naturally, we see ourselves the way a twisted and corrupted world has taught us. Naturally, we see ourselves the way our, our corrupted hearts see ourselves. I remember uh, some years ago, I was 18, so it's a lot of years ago, uh, and I was on a mission trip. And uh, we were down in the south of France, and um, 
Marseille, so, you know, really hot and sunny, and we go out in the morning distributing literature and gospels and invitations, and in the evening we'd do football matches and outreach events, and it was a great time. And in the afternoon we'd have this kind of siesta window, which, of course, you're 18, you don't have a siesta, you go out in the sun, right? So, if you're British. So, we were kind of stood outside hanging around, and, and I, I had a, there was a car there, I remember it because it was mine, a Peugeot 205. And so we're out there, and the sun was beating down, and we're all chatting, and the guys had taken their shirts off and, you know, just kind of relaxing. And I looked at the car, and I saw the reflection, and I don't know why, but it was wider than I remembered myself. I was like, wow, this must be like a growth spurt. I mean, ladies, you probably don't get this, but for men, you understand, like, the dream of, like, suddenly getting a dream physique. Like, suddenly I was bigger, I was wider, I was defined. I was like, whoa, hello. And so I, I kind of kept looking. When no one was looking, I'd give it one of those, you know? And I kept looking, and thankfully I kept looking because eventually I noticed that everyone who walked past behind me was also wider. But it took a while for me to twig that actually that is not flat glass. That's not what I actually look like. Disappointment, Pete, you're going to have to join a gym. You see, I was looking into the mirror. It wasn't a particularly good mirror, and I was seeing what I wanted to see. I was kind of seeing the action man version of myself and all sorts of you know, dreams were coming to, together, but it wasn't reality. And as we look into God's word, it's not that God's word is kind of concave and it you know, messes with us. It's absolutely accurate, but we tend to see what we want to see. We tend to read what we want to read into it. And so when it challenges and convicts and, and prods at us, we tend to be like, I'm all right. That's why we need to persevere. Spend time in God's word like it's the most privileged thing we get. To, to hear God's thoughts being spoken about us, looking intently so that we can see clearly. But there's one more thing that I, I think we've got to notice here because there's a danger. If we're only looking to see ourselves, there's a problem. If you only look in the Bible to see how you measure up, you're not going to. Martin Luther, a German monk 500 years ago, looked into the Word of God, and all he could see there was law and burden and, and standards, and, and he ended up hating God for it. He said, if there's this righteous God whose standard is perfection and I can never measure up, then I hate him because he's demanding something that I can never achieve. All he was seeing was himself and how he fell short of what God's perfect law was, was inviting him to. But what's that word perfect? Is it just saying that it's really, really good? Or is that phrase perfect law and law of liberty actually referring to something more? I think it is. You see, in the Old Testament, back in the day before Jesus came, there was this anticipation that one day God was going to send the Messiah, the Deliverer, and, and, and he was going to do new things. New things like he was going to put the Spirit of God within all of God's people. Like he was going to write the law of God, not on stones and stone tablets out here pressurizing us, but write it on our hearts. He was going to give us new hearts that were alive. We, suddenly it was going to be possible to have an intimate relationship with God. And here we are after Jesus, and I think James is referring to that as the perfect law. 
kind of like the new covenant law fulfilled. Now it's not just this heavy burden on stones that makes us feel inadequate. Now it's written on our hearts. Now the Spirit is within us. Remember the implanted word. Now we have an intimate relationship with God. Now, because of Jesus, we can look and see him. And we can know him. And that maybe is the most important thing we can take away from this is that if we're going to look into the Word of God and we're going to receive it truly the way we're supposed to, and if we're going to respond to it the way we're supposed to, the key is not going to be looking at ourselves. It's going to be looking for God, looking to see His character, looking to see His heart, His uh, desires being spelled out for us. You see, when we read the Bible... It's not a to-do list that we're supposed to get our acts together and do. It's an invitation to get to know God and to hear from Him what He's putting His finger on, even in the trials. So when we're struggling, we come to God and we say, Oh God, I want your wisdom. I want your perspective. I want to see things the way you see things. You're trying to teach me. You're trying to mature me. I want to know what that is. And then we go into the Word. And we receive it humbly. And we respond to it. As we respond to it, we're responding to somebody who's initiated, to a God who's communicating with us and speaking to us. Remember back in verse 17, right in the midst of this chapter, he said, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's the God that wants to meet us in his word. And so as we come to the Word, uh, we, w- we want to be committed to doing what it tells us. Yes, but why? Because it's showing us our need. Yeah, but, but so what? Because it's showing us Him. And if we don't get that, if we miss the implanted Word and we miss the privilege of knowing Him, then we're going to read the Bible like it's some sort of life manual. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And on one level that might be okay, but ultimately it doesn't work. We can't sustain that. We can't follow through on that. Instead, we're invited to meet God in his word. Here at Trinity, we've got some values that drive us. Uh, The third value is that we want to reflect God's character in every area of life, which is what James is driving at all the way through. But the first value is this, pursuing God in the Bible. Not pursuing information, not pursuing instruction, pursuing God. Then verses 26 and 27 is the conclusion. Basically what he says there, okay, we've talked about immaturity. We've talked about humbly receiving God's word and uh, and responding to it. What does that bear in terms of fruit in our lives? It it bears Christ-like or godly quality. It means that the mature us will be reflective of God's character. That is caring for the the widow and the poor person and the oppressed. There'll be an outward uh, kind of desire to care for others. And there will be a passion to be pure before God. Loving God and loving others. That's what maturity looks like. That's what God is drawing us towards. How are we going to get there? How can we move in that direction? Well, this passage from verse 19 to 27 tells us that if we will humbly receive the implanted word, and if we will responsively do what God's word says, we'll be moving towards maturity. 
Let me put the the main idea up on the screen one more time just to underline that to you. The main idea of this section, spiritual maturity comes from humbly receiving God's word and responding to it. But I want to change that because really ultimately it's responding to him. That's the privilege that is ours. He doesn't say to us, here's a burden, now make yourself better. He says, here's my word, now meet me. And I'll tell you what what, what needs to change, and I'll, I'll be working in you, and I'll help you. All I ask is that you humbly receive God's word. Receive what I have to say to you. And then as best you can, in response to me, implement what you see. Implement what I show you. And I will move you toward maturity as an individual and as a church. And then we get to reflect his character more and more in every area of life. Let's just take a moment and and pause before the musicians come back up. And maybe we just need to talk to God about his word and our engagement with it. Maybe you need to say sorry. Maybe you need to say thank you. Maybe you just want to say, I can't wait to get home and read it, Lord. But whatever it is, maybe you need to get hold of it on CD so you can listen to it in the car. Whatever you need to do, just talk to God about that. What's the right next step in light of God's good and perfect gift of his word to us? Maybe he's already been showing you something and you've been resisting. Maybe it's time to be a doer who acts. Let's just take a moment of quiet. I'll pray and then the musicians will come back up. Father, we thank you so much for the astonishing gift of your word to us. We thank you that it's not just words on a page. It's living, it's active, and you've planted it within us by your spirit. And I pray that we would be a church characterized by a passion for you as a, and a passion for your word. Help us to see what steps maybe we need to take to, uh, to really be pursuing you, to be fully yours in terms of, of, of hearing from you in your word. I pray that maybe you'd, by your spirit, convict and show us where perhaps we've been treating the word as just a, just a vitamin pill instead of the feast that it is. But Lord, most of all, stir us with a greater sense of trust that you love us and you want the best for us and it's in your word that we can meet you and respond to you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you have planned in our lives and we pray that this week, even tonight, you would find us to be responsive to your initiative in a way that is truly pleasing to you. Make us more like you. Help us to reflect your character more every day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.